There you go. Lightning and the thunder. Thunder. Feel the thunder. Lightning and the thunder. That's good. He's a man of his word. <laughs> that's great. So I, le- so I learned some things while we we're on vacation. So that song is, is in, our, in our boat mix when we're, when we're on the water. And so, so we were listening to it. And a phrase I learned, which, which tells you a little bit about what I know about music. Apparently, with some songs, there's a moment when the beat drops. <laughs> Did you know? Who knew that? Who knew that? There you go. Yeah, see? I know, I know. So now I've got, I'm working that in, right? So when there's music playing, I, can, I love that, that part in the song where the beat drops, right? And people are like, that guy, he's 50, but wow, yeah. He knows what he's talking about. Because as you're gonna hear later in the service when I talk about the music I listened to when I was in high school, there was no beat to drop. So it's completely foreign concept. So we were listening to that song and I was like, you know, pastors should have a walk-up song when they get ready to preach. And JJ was hanging out with us the second week of vacation. He said, oh, I'm playing this song when you come up. So the other thing I learned when we were on vacation is the name of my haircut. Mm-hmm. It's called the cul-de-sac. Did you know about that? It's when you're bald down the middle and it ends in a circle in the back. I didn't know that was a thing. But my last name's Michaud, so I can say I have a French haircut, you know, the cul-de-sac. So it makes me feel... Makes me feel a little bit hip. Yeah, uh-huh. Things you learn when you hang out with teenagers for a couple of weeks, yeah? It's not so good for your self-esteem. <laughs> not so good for your self-esteem, so. Well, we're excited to be back. Thanks for letting us get away and get refreshed and, uh, and rested. And uh, um, we're just, it's, it's good to get away, but it's good to come home. Yeah, it's good to get away, but it's good to come home. And uh, so we're excited tonight to be here with you. I'm excited for this message that God's been building in my heart this week. And so I, I want to open by reading the statement. So just, just bear with me. It, it might sound a little off at first, but it's going to make sense in just a minute. My goal in life is to be miserable and to create misery. I hope to one day disappoint those closest to me and to betray their trust and to wound them deeply. One day I will forsake honor and serve only my own impulsive desires. I want to live a life controlled by addiction, imprisoned by emotion, and held captive by compulsive behaviors. I intend to perfect the art of creating the feeling and sadness in others. I'm going to live a life in such a way that tests other people's commitment to forgive. I will completely abandon the virtue of being principled. Tragic aspirations that no one ever had. Right? Go away to a conference with your work and your boss says, hey, I want you to set some goals while you're there. And when you come back, everybody gathers in the, in the conference room and shares their goals. And then you read that statement, right? You're looking for a job tomorrow, right? Who, who aspires to live that life? No, no one ever. I'm 50. I've met a lot of people and I've talked to a lot of people about goals and aspirations that they have. I've never had someone come into my office for a meeting with a pastor and read that statement and say, this is what I want to one day become. But I've had a lot of people who come into my office and that's the life that they're living. How, How do people get from a place where they're not aspiring in any way to get to that place, but yet all of a sudden their life is there. How, how do people get from a place where they're flourishing, where they're a devoted follower of Christ? Many of you might know people, right? You hear a story of someone and your, their life just goes off the deep end. You're like, how did that even happen to them? How? 
I guarantee you they didn't aspire to get there, but so many times, maybe some of you here tonight, your life gets into a place that's tragic and we're confused about how they got there. And deep inside, there's something inside of us that's afraid we might get there ourselves. I wanna talk to you tonight about how the enemy begins to work at our lives a piece at a time and he can get us into a place of tragic aspirations, even though we would never intend to be there ourselves. This message is part of a bigger sermon series that we've been in for the entire year. I think we'll probably be in it for the rest of the year. It's called Let's Praxis. We have a website that's devoted to that, letspraxis.com. If, if that's foreign to you, you should check it out. Uh, if you're visiting us, we'd love to give you this as a gift. Uh, it's a book that talks about our discipleship model. If you don't have one and you call this your church home, you can go online and order one of those. You can order the PDF. We're not trying to promote materials. We're trying to put resources into your hands that are gonna empower you and give you a sense of intentionality as your life as a follower of Christ. Th this discipleship model is just based on four simple numbers, the one, the six, the 12, and the 24. There's an invitation, there are commands, there's pathways, and there are virtues. When I accept the one invitation, which is what Jesus asks us all to step into, which is this lifelong journey of becoming his disciple, we have to make a commitment to obey his six commands, the six foundational commands that are the basis of all of Christianity, we believe. And to obey those commands, I walk in 12 pathways, and when I walk in those 12 pathways, I become 24 virtues, which is the picture of the character of Christ. That's what this whole series is about. We're just jumping into different parts of this model. We've talked about pathways and virtues and commands. We're going to talk about another one of our virtues tonight, and that virtue is the virtue of being principled. It's one of our 24. It has a simple definition. It's up there on the screen. It's finding a basis for our morals and ethics in Scripture. That's what being a principled person is. It's simple, isn't it? Finding a basis for our morals and ethics in Scripture. The verse that we paired with that in our, in our book here is Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed. This is out of the New American Standard. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. I call that his gap will. It makes it easy for me to remember. His will for you is always good, acceptable, and perfect. And Paul here in Romans is, is saying that, that hey, if, if you're going to experience the gap will of God, you have to be a principled person, meaning that you don't look to the world to determine what your morals and ethics should be. You look to God's word, and as you do that, he says your mind begins to be transformed, and then all of a sudden the morals and ethics of scripture become your morals and ethics, and as you commit yourself to those boundaries, you become a person of principle. I don't think Judas set out to betray Christ. I mean as a child, right? I mean, when he was a little boy and he was thinking about what he would be one day when he grew up, do you think he said to his friends, man, I hope the Messiah comes in my lifetime because that was every Jewish child's dream, that they would be the generation that the Messiah would come. Do you think as he was talking about with his friends after school that he said, I hope the Messiah comes in our lifetime because I'd like to be the one that betrays him. Do you, do, Judas, he did not set out. His aspiration in life would not be that his fame would come through betrayal. People that don't even know about the Bible, they know the name of Judas, right? Because in our culture, the name of Judas is synonymous with betrayal. 
Listen to these verses about Judas in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver, which was about five weeks of wages in his day. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Christ. Listen to verses 27, three through eight. Then when Jesus, when Judas, who, who had betrayed him, saw that he, speaking of Jesus, had been condemned, he felt remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And then he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. He went away and he hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and says, that's not lawful for us to put this into the temple treasury, right? So all of a sudden they've got scruples, right? All of a sudden these are men of principle. So they conferred together and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood even to this day. So we were hanging out with some pastors this week and we have a, a group that meets every month to pray for our city. We pray for an hour. We typically uh, pick, have four different prayer targets and we spend about 15 minutes on each one. And, and, and so we were hanging out at, at uh, Harvest Ministries at Pastor uh, Neverett Yarborough's church. And, and uh, his, before we were getting started, we were talking a little, catching up and his wife was there and, and they're, they're, one of their daughters is pregnant with their first child, so it's their first grandchild. So she's got pictures on her phone already. The baby's not even born. And these pictures look as though the baby was born. Right? The 3D ultrasound that you can get done. It's, it's fantastic. Has anybody ever seen one of those? It's phenomenal. Right? It, it looks like the child has already been born and you're seeing these pictures even though he's still in his mother's womb. Phenomenal. You know what she did not say? I hope he's the next Judas. You know what they, when they talk about as parents and they're dreaming? Parents talk about, right? We dream about what our children might one day be or one day might become. And we, we pray for our kids, uh, for their future. I guarantee you, they're not praying that their child will one day become famous through an act of betrayal. People do not aspire for tragic circumstances in life. But countless people, that's where they end up. How about Herod? Yeah. Well, there's some people in the Bible that did some crazy things. Listen to these verses in Acts 12, 20 through 23. Now, Herod was very angry. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. There's lots of different Herods in the Bible. We use Herod as a name, but it's not an actual name. It's, it's the sect that they were part of. They were Herodians. So his name was Agrippa. He's the nephew of Antipas. It says Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. And when the day they arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and he sat on his throne and he made a speech to them and the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of God, not a man. If his mom was there, she was probably like, that's my boy, right? What did you want to be when you grew up? We like participation here. Raise your hand, I'll point to you. What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were just a little kid, what did you want to be? Everybody's don't look at the pastor, he's going to call on you. A jet pilot, nice. Come on, somebody else. Anybody over here? You wanted to be an astronaut, yeah? Wanted to go into space. Somebody else, anybody? What did you want to be? Tyler? 
an artist. You are an artist and a principal, but right? You do art. There you go. Somebody else. What did you want to be when you were at Marvin? You wanted to be the next Muhammad Ali. You were close. You were close. Basketball player. I know. I feel your pain, brother. Feel your pain. People ask me all the time, do you play basketball? I'm actually shorter with my vertical leap. That's how bad. That's how poorly I can jump. So somebody else, somebody over here, what did you want to be when you grew up? Maybe one of these, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're in it now. Anybody? No? You guys need to go to camp or something. Get some vision for your life. All right. <laughs> Shani. You want to do what? Work at McDonald's. Free fries. Free shakes. Yeah, Sandy. You wanted to be a veterinarian. I know, but now you take care of Warren. All right, come on. Uh, Scotty. You wanted to be a wrestler. Oh, no. And not like an Olympic wrestler. You wanted to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. The kind on TV. That's awesome. Scotty's a huge wrestling fan. Our boys just got the, wrestling, the first wrestling game for their PS4. One of the first things I did was take a picture of them, send it to Scotty and said, hey, you would be proud of us. Yeah, come on. Next generation fans. I wonder if Herod dreamed of being a king. That was a real thing in his day. I wonder when he was in elementary school, if they did what so many of our kids do, which they're given a project to draw a picture. What do you want to be when you grow up? I wonder if he drew this picture of a king sitting on a throne and, that was regal and, 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 and majestic. I wonder if he brought that home and showed it to his parents. I wonder if the dream of his life was to one day be the ruler of his people. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of God, not a man. Wow. Verse 23. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he had accepted the people's worship Instead of giving the glory to God, he was consumed with worms and died. Yeah, it's graphic, isn't it? I wonder if that was in his picture as a child. I wonder if part of his dream in becoming a king was to one day be the kind of ruler that lived his life in such a way that was an abomination to God and was consumed by worms and died. I wonder if that was in his picture. His teacher was like, this is too dark. Agrippa, you should change that. You shouldn't be drawing pictures like this. Right? Stephen King before his day. <laughs> Who aspires for these ends? I have never met anyone who hopes that their lives are going to end up in that way. But yet you and me, we meet so many people. We hear so many stories where their lives end up in such tragic circumstances. And we know they didn't aspire to get there. How does it happen? How do they end up in a place that's so despairing? Principled. Finding a basis for our morals and ethics in scripture. I like to think of principles as the boundaries of my life. I like to think of them as the walls within which I live. 
I, I like to think of, of the principles, the morals, and the ethics that I find in Scripture. They build a wall that surrounds my life, and the virtue of being a principled person exists in my character and exists in your character when we choose to live with inside of those boundaries. That's what it means to be a principled person. How many of you had a station wagon growing up? Anybody? Yeah. I saw one the other day here at Newport News. I literally wanted to follow them and say, how much, how much would, you, would it take to buy this car from you, right? And theirs, theirs was the fancy station wagon. Remember like the last generation of station wagon? They rounded them a little bit and they made them all aerodynamic. Do you know that? It kind of made them look like a bullet. The station wagon I grew up in was a, was a full-on box, right? With doors, it had wood paneling. And it, right, wood paneling, right? Come on, because that was an upgrade. Because you if you had wood paneling, right? I know, yeah. Our station wagon, wood green paneling, when I turned 16 and got my driver's license, that's what I got to drive. Whew, come on, yeah. Oh, it had the rumble seat in the back that could pop up and you could look out, yeah. Where were the people that knew about safety when I was a kid? Because when we, when we drove around on road trips and we had to go, we got to crawl around, sit in the back. We didn't have DVD, like DVD players, iPods. I mean, the, one of the best games we had were those, those little square plastic things that had lots of little squares that made like a smiley face and you had to move them around to get them in the right order. That was a good time when I was a kid. I know, I'm bitter. Bitter. And if, we're, if, if, if we got into trouble in, on a trip, our parents said, get on your side of the car. That's where it started, right? It ended up in other places, right? Don't make me pull this car. We all know those things, right? But it, but it started with get on, get on your side of the car. Get on your side of the car. I'm having all kinds of flashbacks with my station wagon. So good. Because when I was a teenager and I drove that, I didn't have money for a stereo. So we put it, me and my friends would put a big boom box in the back seat because that was in the air, right? You had the big boom box. You walked around at the neighborhood pool, right? Blaring. Who, who did that? True confessions. How about we'll have everybody close their eyes like an altar call and you could raise your hand if you walked around with a boombox with every head bowed and every eye closed. And you know what was booming on my boombox? Oh yeah, come on. I was in high school in the 80s, air supply. Mm -hmm. So this week, this week I was like, I, I pulled them up in iTunes, right? In the 1980s, they had seven straight top five single hits. How is that even possible? Have you heard their music? There, at no point in any song is there a beat that drops, right? <laughs> See how it worked that in? I know, I know. Come on, come on, come on. So my parents would say, get on your side. Now, we knew what that meant, right? There was an imaginary line that now existed in our car. Could not be crossed, right? Right up the middle. So what did we do? We'd be like that. <laughs> we'd put our hand right there on the line. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not over the line. I'm on my side. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know you did it. You know you did it, right? You just, whatever you can do, right, to get as close to the edge but not violate the rule that you were given. Mm -hmm. That's where we lived. For some of you, that's where you live today. You... It's not as though you're confused about the morals and the ethics that God gives to you. It's that you, you're trying to live as close 
to the edge as you can without going outside. You've bought into this belief, this lie from the enemy, that the boundaries, the principles that God gives to us that are intended to keep us safe, instead of viewing them as something that gives you life, you view those principles as a prison. And that's the first step to your life becoming undone is where in your mind and in your thoughts and in your heart, you believe that the boundaries that God has given to you are to imprison you and to rob you of good things as opposed to existing for the purpose of protecting you so you can have the greatest of things. Psalm 119, 87. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Let me read that again. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. What's the psalmist saying? That the precepts or the principles of God's word are there to protect us. They're there to keep us safe. Something inside of me has got to see all of these morals and ethics that we find in scripture. And as we get a revelation, it it becomes a new brick in the wall that we're building around us. Our heart has got to look out and not despise those boundaries, but to celebrate them because we know that God has put them there to protect us. Proverbs 22, 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do you know there's a, a lot in the Mosaic Law, Proverbs, some in Psalms, about not moving boundary markers. I don't think so much that, that God was uptight about real estate. I think this is prophetic imagery for us. Did it have a practical application in, in the days of Moses? Sure it did, like a, a lot of the rest of the Mosaic Law, but, but, but most of it is there for the pr- prophetic imagery that it becomes for us today. It was for Jesus in Jesus' day. And the prophetic imagery of this not moving ancient boundaries that our fathers has given us is this idea of where God has put the boundaries of life, of morals and ethics that we find in Scripture. Every generation is tempted to move those boundaries to something that's more accommodating to them. And Proverbs like this are in here because God is saying, don't do that. Those boundaries are there for a purpose and a reason. You see, where one generation fails, my pocket knife fell out of my pocket. This is my dress knife, for those of you, right? Which they make fun of me for, right? My friends, I know, my wife is saying yes now, right? I'm just gonna put it right there, so, all right. You gotta have, I grew up in the country, you have a pocket knife. How many people have a pocket knife in their pocket right now? There you go, see, all right. I know, I know, I'm a little bit odd. I carry a flashlight too. A little flashlight right there. 50 and don't care. 50 and don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hashtag 50 and don't care. The way one generation fails another generation is they teach them the precepts, but they don't give them the passion for it. They teach them the rules, but that's all they give them. And if you only see these precepts and boundaries as rules, then you don't have an affection for those things. You're vulnerable to the lie of the enemy that comes in and says it's a prison as opposed to that's what gives us life. The first way that you become vulnerable 
to be a person that ends up with tragic, a tragic life even though you didn't have tragic aspirations is this idea when you see the protection of God's words as a prison. If that's you today, then something's got to shift in your heart where you begin to trust in the goodness of God and that whatever he says to you that is a no, it's because he has your best interest at heart. James 1, 14 through 15. This is the second way it happens. In fact, number one kind of gets us ready for the second. Because when your mindset is off, then you're vulnerable here to what James teaches. 1, 14 through 15 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. See, there's a pattern. Let me read it again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Tragedy that no one ever aspires to find. James is giving us a very poignant picture through the language that the Holy Spirit inspires him to write. The first one is this word tempted. It's a very specific word in the Greek. It's parazo, and it means to test someone with malicious intent. It means you're testing them not because you want them to succeed, right? Teachers give us tests in school because they, 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 they want us to succeed, not because they want us to. Well, maybe some teachers, right? We can all remember a few, but most teachers, right? You, you, when you're, if, you're, if you're working out and you've got a personal trainer, right, they're, they're constantly testing your strength, not so you fail, but to build you up. So there's a testing that builds you up. But this word here means to test someone with malicious intent. It means that the devil is hoping that you're going to fail. That's what temptation is. It means bringing an opportunity for someone to do something that they shouldn't do with the hope that they'll do it and fall. Then James talks about this idea of being carried away and enticed. It, it, this word enticed literally means to lure someone away. You tracking with James here? The devil, he comes and he sees that we're a principled person. We have these, these morals and ethics that we're committed to. He recognizes them, right? Because he, he knows what they are because he started in heaven in his journey, right? So he recognizes all of these morals and ethics. And so he's, 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 he's around our life, testing and probing the perimeter of our convictions. And he's looking for an opportunity, right? With malicious intent to draw us out. And the way he draws us out is he casts a lure of temptation into our lives, hoping that we'll follow him to the other side of the boundary. Yeah. Now, I like to fish when we go on vacation. I never catch much, but I enjoy the process, right? So I've had this pole here probably for about 30 years. It's the first fishing pole that I ever bought. And how many of you know, let me come up here so you can see. Kenny, how many fish am I gonna catch with this right here? Zero. He's got a YouTube channel on fishing. You should check it out. Come on, yeah? There you go, like and subscribe. Yeah. We're not gonna, we're not gonna catch any fish with this. Why are we not gonna catch any fish with this, right? It's, it's self-evident. It what's it missing? Bait, or it's missing a lure, right? There's supposed to be something on the end that the fish is drawn to so that they want it. You take that same pole, 
And you put one of these little fellows on there. There you go. Kenny said he's preaching now. Yeah. This has a little offset hook so you can, oh yeah. There you go. Come on, I'm feeling it. I'm going to cast it right down this aisle right here. No, I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, see? Some of you are like, I'm a little bit hungry. That looks a little good, right? See, now this setup is, is important because this is, this is made for bottom fishing, right? So the, the hook is not going to get hung up on other stuff. So you're casting it out, right? You're casting it out. I'm not going to cast it. I don't want to make people nervous. And it just kind of sits on the bottom, right? It just kind of sits there. It's got this little bullet weight that moves around. And you pick it up, and you drop it down. And in the water, as it comes down, it does like this. And it lays on the bottom. You let it sit there for a minute, right? And you pull it up, and you let it fall back down. We got to Lake Gaston, I kid you not. We were our first day there. It was like 11 o'clock in the day. It's hot. It's not even the right time to fish. My first cast with this worm and this setup with the offset hook, man, my pole was bent in half. I knew I probably had a catfish on there from where we were. And I'm reeling this fish up, in, right? It was probably this big, but in my imagination, it was this big, right? The pole is too small to get it up out of the water. I get it to the surface, but the pole is literally bent. I can't get it up out of the water. And so I'm thinking if I hold the pole up and get down on my knees, I can reach down and, you know, put my thumb in this catfish's mouth. And right when I get about here, the line breaks and it falls to the bottom, right? The story of my life as a fisherman. (laughs) The fish I never catch. But then I thought, this is my first cast on the first day. We're going to have a dock full of fish. I didn't catch one more fish the whole time we were there, all seven days. Yeah. Derek caught one that was so big, we had a five-gallon bucket. It was Derek, right? Did you catch that one? The catfish was so big, the back half of the fish hung out over the bucket. Massive cat. He also caught a stump, but that's another story for another time. We'll tell that one another time. Ethan, he caught a fish. It was one of the biggest fish I've seen there at Gaston. He, he's got a different pole. His pole is shorter now than it used to be because he got this fish up. It wasn't a cat. I don't even know what it was, but it was gargantuan. So I, I grabbed this bucket because we didn't have a net because we're not used to catching fish like this, right? So we don't have the gear. We don't have a vision for this kind of fishing, right? So I grabbed this five-gallon Home Depot bucket and I run over there and I get down and I'm gonna scoop the fish out because this is what we do with the catfish for Derek. And right as I get down to scoop it up, I kid you not, the top half of fishing pole snapped in half. I was like, what kind of fish is this? So I didn't catch any other fish, but I did catch something else later that week. Fishing, fishing, I got something on. I caught a fishing pole. I kid you not. With a nice Shimano reel, I tried to clear it was too far gone, right? They're expensive, right? Shimano gives it. So I get it, and you know what? The top half of this fishing pole is broken off. And now I knew exactly how this pole got into the water, right? Because some other guy was out there like, catching the fish of his lifetime. He's going to be in the, the local paper, and it breaks off. And then, right, with a few choice words, he throws his pole right <laughs> into the water. Even if you don't fish, you know how fishing works. You do. The devil knows how fishing works. You ever, you ever find it interesting that Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men. 
Because the gospel is supposed to lure us in in the right way. The devil, he's a fisher of men. And he's casting on the other side of our wall forbidden desires. And he's trying to draw us out. He's not trying to get into our lives. He's trying to get us outside of the boundaries that we've devoted ourselves to. This last word that James gives us, it says that when lust has conceived, it's epithumia. It means a desire for what is forbidden. That's how he works. The same way that we fish from the dock or the shore or the boat when we're out in this sporting adventure, it's such a powerful picture for us for what the devil is constantly doing in our lives. He's casting the lure and he knows the things that you long for. Right, great fishermen, they know what lure to put and what bait based on the, trying to, the kind of fish that they're trying to catch. The devil, he knows the forbidden desires that you long for. And he's casting them in. And he's waiting for you to grab a hold so that you'll step outside of the morals and the ethics that you've devoted yourself to so that you can be a principled person. And the reason why this one ends up after the first one is because the only way that that forbidden desire even becomes a desire for you is if you view the boundaries of God's word as a prison. Because when you see these boundaries as life, then we don't desire that which is forbidden because we recognize that it's only going to bring death. Your greatest defense against the forbidden desires that the enemy is fishing you with is this view that you don't want anything that is forbidden by God because you know where it leads. When you give in to forbidden desires, you find yourself on a path of tragic aspirations that you never had. He doesn't care so much about moments of indiscretion. That's not his game. He's, his, his game, he, 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 he doesn't get excited about little moments of indiscretion because his goal is not to get you to make a mistake. His goal is to get you to become Judas. His goal is for you to be Herod. He's not satisfied with little mistakes. It's where all of those mistakes ultimately lead he, he knows that he's not going to get you to go from here to here in a moment. But he might be able to get you to go here. And from there, he might be able to get you to go here. And then to here. And then to here. And then five years from now, you're not even in the parking lot of this church, you're somewhere way out there. And someone says, do you remember a name? And then they tell the story and people are like, how did they get there? They got there by just what we're talking about today. It starts with a mindset and a belief about what you think God is doing when he puts boundaries around your life. 
And I believe that he is a perfect father that only ever has my best interests at heart. And so that everything he says no to me about, it's to protect me. It's not to rob me of pleasures in life. It's to set me up for the greatest of life to live. And whenever the enemy is casting lures, as he does for all of us, with forbidden desires, with malicious intent, testing our perimeter, if this thing that's now dangling in front of us, we know is against what God would want from us, something inside of us, instead of being drawn to that, should be disgusted by it because we know where it leads. And it leads to tragic aspirations that you never had. Because that's where he's trying to get us to go. Invite the worship team to come back up. So how do all of these, I know the band's thinking, is he better move that pole? I know I'm gonna get it, I gotta get it. All right. so, so how do all these moments of indiscretions lead to a life of tragedy? I have a seed right? Your life, it's flourishing. You're growing. You're alive and healthy. You've made a vow of devotion to Christ and, and, and something inside of you is coming alive for the very first time. And, and your wall, it might be small now because your understanding of God's word is just beginning to grow, but you've, you've got this little wall that's, that's around you, that's the, the boundaries of, of God's word because you want to be a principled person because you know it's one of these virtues that represents the life of Christ and the enemy is constantly casting, right, these lures of forbidden desires because he's trying to draw us out. But like I said before, he doesn't care about these moments of industry for what they are, it's for what they become. Because every time you give in to one of these forbidden desires that he uses to try to lure you out because now your mindset of these boundaries is, is that something that God is trying to rob you. Every time you give in to one of those desires, it's planting a seed of rebellion into your heart. Oh yeah, that's what happens. See, the devil doesn't care about the moment of indiscretion. He cares about what the moment of indiscretion does in you. And then you go back to living your life and you're still thriving and flourishing. And then at some point, there's another temptation and you give in and guess what? Another seed of rebellion gets planted deep into the soil of your heart. You see, that's how you go from here to somewhere way out there. Because eventually, all of those seeds of rebellion that get planted in our heart every time we give in to a moment of indiscretion to some forbidden desire, it will one day bear fruit. You ever stop and think about in the Garden of Eden in the beginning of time, the imagery that's given to us? Oh, it's a tree, and it was about fruit. Because sin produces a seed of rebellion that gets planted in us. And at some point, all of those seeds begin to produce something in our lives. Stand with me. If you're here tonight, I hope that you can join us next week because next week 
we're going to do principle part two. And we're going to work our way through one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible. It's Matthew 13 that talks about all of these parables of sowing and reaping because God wants us to understand how those seeds get planted in and what we can do to keep them out. Father, we know that for all of us that are here tonight, even though it might be that some people are finding themselves in tragic circumstances, none of us have ever aspired to be there. So God, may it be that something would be reoriented in our lives tonight. That we would see every rule, every boundary, not as a prison, but as a promise. A promise that leads to a life that's beyond measure. And whenever the enemy comes to with malicious intent the boundaries that we've devoted ourselves to that instead of longing after the lure of a forbidden desire that we would be disgusted by it because we would know the death that it would bring because of the seed of rebellion that could get planted in our heart I pray that for all of us tonight Father as we step into this moment of worship that our hearts would be turned to you in such a way that the only thing that we would ever long for in this life would come from your hand. In Christ's name, let's worship together. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. Tender whispers of love 
the text that we read together. See, verse 16 says, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God. So good, isn't it? He's our Father who created all the lights in the heavens, and He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. What's that mean? It means that whatever God says is good and whatever He says isn't good doesn't change with time because God is timeless. The verse is in there to remind us that whatever the devil's casting inside of our boundaries, he's saying, hey, don't be misled by those things because whatever God wants you to have, he can give you and everything he wants to give you is good and whatever the enemy's gonna give you is a cheap imitation. But he knows that there's the temptation in every generation to say, 
That might have been what was good for your generation, but not for mine. See, some things, they're ancient boundaries. And they're given to us by God. And what was good in the beginning of time is going to be good in the end of time. And something inside of my heart has got to say, those are the only things that I want. Father, may it be for every person here. For some of them, God, they might be taking some serious inventory of their life. Father, if they need to reach out to someone, I pray they would find the courage to do it. Father, if they need to make a call, that they would do it. They need to stay after tonight for some prayer, that they would do it. Maybe some people, they, they recognize that the, the wall that's around them is, 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 is woefully inadequate because there's not enough time spent in your word to build that wall that needs to be created. I pray that for this week, Father, they're going to find a new appetite to spend with you, opening up this book that can open up the promises of life for us. May it be, Father, that our heart would never see the protection as prison. May it be, oh God, that, that, that we would not be lured away so easily by forbidden desires. And may it be, oh God, that every seed of rebellion that's been planted in our heart from choices in days past would be pushed out and eradicated. And that the soil of our heart would only be such to receive the promises from you. A good and perfect Father for all time. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody sit together. Amen. We'll see you next week.